You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I believe that this is a tremendous setback for North Korea and indeed a setback for the world. Or is it, as Donald Trump announces that the summit might go ahead after all, my guests Sophia Ahmadi, Marcus Hippie and Augustin Machalari will discuss the always interesting question of whether Trump has the least idea what he's doing. Plus, we'll savour the joy of having half an hour free of deleting GDPR emails. We'll contemplate the accelerating banishment of private vehicles from European downtowns and... Well now, Mrs. Appleyard, that's just the trouble. Nobody knows what happened. What to expect from a remake of one of the creepiest films ever made. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Sophia Ahmadi, Marcus Hippie and Augustin Machalari. Welcome all to the programme. And we will start tonight fossicking in the wreckage of the planned summit between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, cancelled yesterday by Trump. In a bid to divine Trump's strategic thinking, such as it may be, several commentators have turned to Trump's terrible business book, The Art of the Deal, in search of enlightenment. Some have suggested that Trump has pulled a manoeuvre straight from the as if returning to his roots as a real estate spiv seeking to unbalance a rival developer. But is Trump right to think of politics as he thought of business, especially since he was no good at that either? Um, Augustine, first of all, Trump is now saying it could all still go ahead on June the 12th. Those commemorative coins may not have been printed in vain after all. Uh, what do you think? Is this going to happen? I actually never thought it was going to go ahead on June the 12th. So I felt very vindicated yesterday when Trump announced that it had so been cancelled. So you saved your $25 and didn't buy one of the commemorative coins? I am going to buy a coin. I feel like it's important to have a, a coin that's a part of history. I also bought a mug with um, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's face on it, which I'm going to The, coin, the, coin, the coins are five bucks off at the White House gift shop. That's not bad. No, no, I mean, but my point is if the summit does go ahead, they'll go back up again. So pile in. Get them while they're hot. Exactly. Um, I would be very, 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 very surprised if it went ahead on June the 12th. Uh, it seems as though he hasn't quite salted the earth in the way that you might expect. There's less of the like little rocket man and calling him fat and all that. But I'd still, you know, view the North Koreans as agents of great cynicism at this point. Quite apart from anything else, you know, it's been observed that the idea of wealth, which to Trump is more important than anything else in the world, really hasn't got that much cachet for North Korea, where they set a lot of store by their cache of nuclear weapons. The idea that haggling techniques refined in the sort of hot, you know, I don't know, Wall Street-y, is Wall Street real estate? No, that's finance, Well, there's real estate on Wall Street. That kind of environment, that New York 80s, American psycho vibe, the idea that that haggling techniques that would work there would translate to a North Korean communist despot is incredibly naive. The thought that they're culturally universal is, um, is, 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 is blatantly inaccurate. So, no, I don't think it'll go ahead because I don't think he has what they want or even knows how to 
communicate with them meaningfully. Um, Sophia, Trump has given some impression that this is all part of some grand plan of his. He said today that everybody plays games. Um, Do you perceive any strategic rationale whatsoever behind this? And if there is some strategic rationale, I guess, on Trump's part, uh, how sure can we be, as uh, Augustine casts doubt on, that the, the North Koreans see this quite the same way he does? I, th- I think this definitely was a greater strategic play from Trump in the fact that um, when you look at it, I think he was effectively preempting uh, a couple of potential scenarios with North Korea. The fact that uh, potentially they were not turn- not going to turn up to the summit on Ju- June 12th, and this we can see from the growing skepticism, you know, over the past few weeks, um, a lot of angry rhetoric being exchanged between the two sides, uh, and I think also the actual potential, which you know, Pompeo when he addressed the. Senate, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, of how likely it was to be a successful meeting. Um, You know, what a lot of people have said is that there has been no uh, diplomatic legwork, nothing has been done in preparation. It's been very much uh, a rush job. And I think it's very clear that there was, uh, or that there is this complete mutual ambiguity surrounding the term denuclearization and what that meant for both for both sides uh, was there to be you know a set timeline was it going to be a comprehensive plan obviously in north north korea's eyes no uh, and i think it was this realizing that um, they were both coming from very very different angles uh, and i think you know when it comes to diplomacy obviously it requires uh, persistence it requires patience um, but more importantly it requires a, a plan which clearly there was not in this case persistence patience and planning three things that donald trump is of course famous for see marcus the reason i think this might actually happen and the reason that trump is is still leaving that possibility open is 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 that the one thing he does respond to is is anything that that glorifies himself Uh, and he clearly very much wants to win the nobel prize for peace and even he must realise that this is the only chance he's going to get. Because you you can see how he's just lit up every time somebody's mentioned it in front of him, even if they've been kind of teasing him while they're doing it. And I think that's why he still wants this to happen. What do you think? I agree totally, and I think one of the reasons why he wants Nobel Peace Prize so desperately is that Barack Obama also got it. Of course. And he's always comparing himself to Barack Obama. His leading ideology seems to be to, first of all, undo as much as Barack Obama achieved during his presidency. Presidency, and basically, he just wants to, you know, he just, I think he's just really needy. He wants that respect. He kind of wants to seem, like, seem like he's more loved and greater than Barack Obama on, on some level, which obviously isn't, isn't that great a quality for, for a leader of a superpower. I mean, Sophia, is it possible that, that that deeply weird letter that Trump sent the North Koreans might actually have worked? I mean, it, it was, I think, the strangest diplomatic communique in history. I think if, if, if already one doesn't think much of, of Trump's public speaking, uh, the letter, again, sort of <laughs> invokes other questions. But I think it was sort of, it was a very interestingly written letter. It was almost <laughs> slapping North Korea uh, on the one cheek and sort of kissing it on the other. Um, and I think it was, you know, on the one hand, we have Trump saying, 
well, you know, our military is ready, we're going to step in, uh, we have the strongest military in the world. And then on the other hand, he's sort of uh, applauding Kim Jong-un, saying, oh, what a beautiful gesture it was that you released these American detainees. Um, obviously, North Korea as well, we've just seen, have blown up one of their, their nuclear test sites as well. So uh, some acts of good faith on the North Korean front, whether it could be argued that was sort of um, North Korean theatre, I mean, that's that's another argument, but... Um, Augustine, as a general rule, uh, this has always been Trump's pitch when he was running for president, that he's a businessman, he's a deal maker. But as a general rule, are business deals the same thing as political deals? Well, I was thinking about this before we came in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, on the one hand, Trump replacing statesmanship with spivvy haggling does seem to illustrate his perverse unsuitability for the role. But on the other hand, I did sort of think, why not, right? I, the difficulty is that the terms are, are way more serious than a, 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 a deal of real estate insofar as it's people's lives rather than money that they're kind of haggling over. But then I thought, you know, at the very least, this approach is going to completely play into the hands of his base because it's a narrative that's been borne out by countless Hollywood films, which is that of the maverick coming into a situation and approaching it according to his own rules and his own logic and triumphing. Obviously, it's the real world and statesmanship exists to provide a framework on how nation states relate to one another beyond the realms of that narrative. But then, you know, I did think about Winston Churchill and there are arguments that his inveterate gambling habits informed his conduct in World War II I know that you're not going to come back at me with anything. I, I, I was, about, I was about to congratulate you on having made the first and possibly the last ever comparison between Winston Churchill and Donald Trump. I'll be here a week. Yeah. Exactly. We, we, we have we have ver we have veered into a very strange realm uh, already. Uh, we should move along. Uh, unfortunately, I could probably discuss that at further length, but uh, it will be interesting when economic data for this past week is released to see how big a hit the GDPs of European countries have taken from the fact that everyone has spent the last five days doing nothing but deleting emails from companies asking us if we want any more emails from them. This deluge of importuning spam has been the consequence of something called General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which means that companies operating in the EU must get express consent to collect personal information from users. Fines for failing to comply can run into millions, hence the erring on the side of caution of everyone whose website you've ever glanced at. Um, I just want to go around the table quickly, starting with you, Marcus. How many of these have you been getting? Gosh, many. <laughs> um, I think I've got about maybe a hundred, two hundred loads. But actually, at the same time, you know, I have to say I've really enjoyed this week. It's been great just not getting back to any of those. <laughs> uh, Sophia? Uh, yes, again, too many to count. But I, I swear, I think more irritating is that if I receive one more notification that pops up on my screen saying I have to accept cookies, I, I will lose my mind. And Augustine? Yeah, I've had a lot, but I have a a cleverly set up Hotmail account which directs emails like that to my other inbox. So I've just been ignoring them. Like Marcus, I've been enjoying the kind of self-filtering mechanism that's allowing me to not have to actually 
personally unsubscribed from all these mailing lists. And it's actually been quite astonishing, by the way, to realise all these companies that actually have my email address. I don't think many of them have actually asked if I wanted to be, like, you know, in the know of what they're up to. But the weird thing is, now I have read a bare fraction of the many I have been sent, but of the ones I have read in the the spirit of, um, you know, journalistic curiosity, some of them have been, get back to us if you don't want to hear any more from us, and some have been, get back to us if you do want to. So some have been opt-in and some have been (laughs) opt-out. Joking. I haven't no. even noticed. Well, no, I just no, haven't this, got back to but, really. but, I haven't but read this, them. This is what worries me. In the, because after you've read two or three and you just realise that life is too short and I have other things to do and just delete them all unread, there's no way of knowing really which ones are from people you do want to hear from again and which ones are from people you don't. <laughs> this changes everything. Doesn't it? That's a real shame. <laughs> Someone's spending the weekend with that Hotmail inbox, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, Sophia, though, isn't, isn't there an issue here in that this is, this is there are companies, especially things like... For example, you know, uh, public relations outfits who I guess journalists hear from a lot, but their mailing list is their livelihood and they're going to have to rebuild it from scratch again if all they're doing is firing these emails uh, into space that everybody's ignoring. Exactly, and I think this also is is a bigger problem, I think, if you actually look for smaller businesses who have obviously spent years creating these, you know, big mailing lists, um, trying to get clients in, and all of a sudden that's going to be, I think, pretty much halved for a lot of people. If we sort of look at the examples, like we've just said around the table, how none of us are reading or slash automatic swiping left and deleting um, on our inboxes, it's very clear that most of the population will probably be doing the same. I don't think there is a, or at least I can say from my part, a generally invested interest in the GDPR in terms of on a daily basis. Uh, well, th- this is the thing. I mean, how, how clear is everybody here? And the, the, the first one of you to answer can pile in on what this actually means and what it actually does. I think... What it means is that very soon companies will have to be able to prove that they have got the exceptions from people who are receiving their emails that they actually want them. I think that's the key point. What does GDP? What does it don't stand for? <laughs> I was reading this and I thought I would remember it, but I don't anymore. Um, it, was, it was right there in the queue, Marcus. Were you not listening when I introduced this item? I, I don't think General Data Protection Regulation has remembered. Yeah, catchy. It, it, it is not catchy. But I mean, there is a wider question here, though. Um, and again, fastest you know, answer first. Does anybody read terms and conditions for anything on the internet ever? No. Does and anyone have time for that? There's like too much information. And, way and, too much. And a lot of that is quite irrelevant in the end. But and who has the kind of technical literacy? It's written in legalese often, isn't it? That, that's a thing that Facebook has, in the, in the wake of various controversies, the greatest of which was the Cambridge analytical one, uh, Facebook has been redrafting its T's and C's to make them more, uh, less opaque and more easily comprehended by the common or garden Facebook fiend. I, I, I got regularly ripped off for ages by a credit card. When I rang them up and complained about it, they said it's in the terms and conditions to which I could only respond, yes, which you printed in gold print on a white background <laughs> with extremely small writing. Um, unfortunately, that, that, that argument did not persuade them. I think this is kind of like, I, I'm actually quite, I'm quite happy about this thing happening now because I'm quite looking forward to next week when I'm probably getting a lot less email. And I think this is, an, this is a European Union thing and I think they should kind of like realise to actually, you know, 
drum this whole thing up a bit more to make people realize that the European Union is actually doing something good for its citizens. Well, Sophia, is this basically, is it genuinely a good thing? Have companies been allowed to make merry with our personal data far too freely for far too long? Is this reckoning slightly overdue, even if it does mean that we've spent all week deleting emails and a whole bunch of PRs are going to have to put their databases back together? I, I do think it is a good thing. And I think, you know, general uh, protection for, for users and is is a really good thing but i think at the same time um you know it, it also is a case of well where do where do we go next and i think there are a lot of going to be a lot of kinks as well coming in into the legislation that's been introduced we're not going to be allowed to access a, a lot of foreign websites now due to these protection rules so i think there's there's going to be um a sort of call now for the next steps and 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 what to do i mean you know it's been said today that obviously um a lot of us us based websites a lot of news forums we can't access them now such as for example the la times or chicago tribune because of these uh, data protection laws. And, and, and that is a shame that we will be missing out as much as gaining on the one hand, we will be missing out from, from certain sites as well. I just want to say briefly that one of the reasons why I'm so happy is that I don't really want to get all emails I get nowadays. I just want to give you an example of what I received earlier this week. It was a press release this about... It be a regular segment, it Marcus's was, it, inbox. It was, a, it was a press release about flea outbreaks and that was offered <laughs> a case study of a lady who was bitten by fleas which caused her ankle to swell to twice its size. <laughs> And then the PRs, please do let me know if you would like to see this, along with images, never made it to Monocle 24. Marcus, I, I think you know there's a, a possible certain significance in the fact that nobody else here has been getting press releases <laughs> about fleas. It, it, it is just you. I, I think you may have to consider that, that you might be the problem. Uh, we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House. Coming up next, several visions of the potential future of our cities. The pendulum is a swinging, and these days it's the city of Paris that's turning heads with retail innovation. Monocle Films travel to the 16th arrondissement to sample Le Beau Marché's new addition to La Grande Épicerie family. Food is a lot of memory. It's memory with your mother, with your grandmother. Food is uh, and a pleasure. You have to find this uh, game with a product. I try in the architecture to have this sensibility. For a filmic tour of La Grande Épicerie Rive Droite, head to monocle.com. Welcome back to Midori House. You have got no idea how grateful you are that you missed the conversation occurring there during the promo. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Sophia Ahmadi, Marcus Hippie and Augustin Machalari. We are now joined as well by Monocle's Ben Ryland. Now, earlier this week on Midori House, we discussed Estonia's plans to make public transport free across almost all of the country. It's not the only transport-related idea which might once have sounded like utopian fantasy now being taken seriously by city planners and municipal governments. From November, non-resident vehicles will be banned from all of downtown Madrid. Oslo hopes to go car-free from next year, and London is not for the first time discussing the pedestrianisation of Oxford Street. Uh, Ben, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. Is something generally shifting around the world? Are we on the cusp of one of those weird cultural shifts? Uh, Yeah, I don't think it's that weird, though, is it? Because if you're in any of the very big cities, such as here in London, I think we've all been... uh, 
wanting to try or trying to get around the inner inner city and realizing that it's actually very difficult because the place can be really gridlocked by cars and how easy it would be if we just got rid of some of these cars and opened the street up for us all to be able to walk down as well. It, it, that's especially true uh, on Oxford Street. If you are walking down Oxford Street, which is, of course is the main shopping strip here in the center of London, if you opened up that, that precious space that's occupied by usually a, a bumper-to-bumper uh, cars with a, a few buses thrown in between, you would actually make the whole strip a lot easier to navigate and uh, probably easier to get to a lot of the shops as well. I think the business owners would be quite happy with that. See, this this is one of those very rare arenas in which I feel like I'm vastly ahead of my time because as somebody who's mostly lived in relative downtown areas of big cities, I've never bothered to learn to drive and I've never owned a car because I, I simply cannot see what the point of it is. Well, you would be in the minority, especially in Australia then, Andrew, because I, I, Indeed, I have I to agree. I mean, we are both Australian and uh, I, one of the strangest things about growing up in Melbourne was that it has the best public transport in in Australia for sure. You can get anywhere you need to go either by train or by tram. And yet to not have a car, to not know how to drive makes you the ultimate weirdo. And it's it's just it's I, not the I, case I, here I was in called I was called that as well, Ben. Um, <laughs> Sophia, is there any argument against any of this? Because there's the obvious there's the obvious libertarian comeback one that you know that the car represents freedom and people should be able to drive where they please, etc. And so forth. Does that still hold any water? Um, I think it does slightly, but I, I think it's more of a case of, of cost, which the cities are going to have to deal with. And I think it's a case as well of um, uh, debates which are going to be generating, especially, for example, if we look at uh, Paris as a model, obviously you have the mayor there really pushing uh, to make the city greener and has introduced some serious measures to do so. Um, you know, earlier this year, she announced plans for uh, a study into the feasibility of free citywide transport. Um, but then again, you know, people will then argue against it, saying that if travellers don't have to pay, well, then the taxpayers do. And I think that's uh, a big argument uh, which we'll see in other cities as they start to make this tr- uh, sort of uh, transition towards uh, public transport being uh, being free and being a lot more uh, available. Um, Marcus, the cities of Scandinavia are often pioneers of, of various sorts of urbanism innovations. W- where is Finland on this? I think it's interesting. I was just going to mention that I'm quite curious to see what Oslo is going to be doing. You mentioned that Oslo hopes to go car-free from next year. Well, in Finland, the country is really divided. Helsinki has people who don't drive cars, but actually pretty much all other parts of Finland have people driving cars. And there's always the same argument, even in Helsinki, there's always this argument about families. Can you imagine if you have four kids and then you have to take one of them to a football practice and then the other one has to be dropped to school and all that. So otherwise, like the argument is that like you just make life too difficult for these families and they just, you know, they're basically taking opportunities away from children so that they could get to their hobbies. I think that's the only proper argument I've heard in the Nordic region. But we are seeing this shift over there as well. Helsinki, for example, has been contemplating about having some kind of a system of, of, of increased public transport and some kind of a road toll for cars that want to enter the central parts of the city. But even Helsinki is very, very divided in this issue and they haven't been able to make any decisions so far. Um, some, Augustine, some of those points Marcus makes may be obviated slightly by the development of self-driving cars, of shareable cars, that kind of thing. Is this one of those things, I, I do always wonder about this, you know, those things that you look back on that ha- used to happen 30 years ago that were seen as normal and now just seem incomprehensible and barbarous. 
Is is private car ownership going to be one of those? A couple of generations hence, people just be going, God, those people are insane. What were they doing? I mean, fingers crossed it is. Obviously, there's a kind of large line to be drawn between um, places, you know, developing countries where car ownership and and, and its associated status is a key sort of signifier of wealth and success for a burgeoning middle class against countries where it's more established. I mean, to talk about, I was interested to hear about just thinking about the division between uh, the rural and the urban when it comes to cars. It kind of occurred to me that people in cities need cars about as much as they need shotguns, which Mm -hmm. is really not at all. Um, I I hope that it will become uh, a a, a sort of quote-unquote barbarous thing. The impact that cars have had on cities, when you sort of step back and and think about it, is really staggering, especially when you relate that to the relative brevity of our dependence on them. You know, it's under 100 years. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, a clip from a film which successfully inculcated in generations of Australians a morbid terror of leaving the city to have a barbecue. Excuse me, mademoiselle. Yes, Marianne. I should like to make a few measurements for base of the rock if we have time. With Miranda and Irma. Oh, please, mademoiselle. We'll be back long before tea. Eh bien, allez. May I come too, please? So long as you don't complain. I won't. Promise. And don't worry about us, mademoiselle. We shall only be gone a little while. As well as a creeping horror of panpipes, although in fairness that may just be the panpipes. Uh, that is from Peter Weir's 1975 adaptation of Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock, a nigh-perfect evocation of what Dorothea McKellar characterised as the beauty and the terror of the Australian bush. Picnic at Hanging Rock has now been remade as a mega-budget miniseries by Amazon. Early reviews are quite promising. Uh, ben, first of all, um, as probably the only other person at this table who's seen it, um, <laughs> explain Picnic at Hanging Rock to the rest of the panel and to our listeners. Picnic at Hanging Rock is often considered by critics and purists in Australia as the ultimate classic Australian film. It was released in 1975. Uh, it is credited with really kickstarting or, or restarting the Australian film industry. Uh, it was, as you say, Andrew, an adaptation of Joan Lindsay's uh, much-loved novel. Uh, and it, it depicts a, a group of, of schoolgirls who are in, uh, they're attending a boarding school in rural Australia around the turn of the century, and uh, they go for a picnic at Hanging Rock. As the title suggests. As the title suggests. Uh, and some of those schoolgirls, uh, something quite mysterious happens to them, and uh, we don't really know uh, what ever happened to them. And I, I won't give anything away from that, but I have to say, the film, it, it's unsettling. A lot of a lot of its uh, uh, people remember it because of the way it made them feel, not necessarily because of the uh, the fast-moving plot. It's, it's quite a, a slow and meditative film, but it's certainly something you won't ever forget. It gave me the absolute creeping horrors when I first saw it, which I guess would have been as a kid probably in my mid-teens, and I'm not uh, I, I, I'm not somebody who gets the creeping horrors from films easily, but it, there is something, um, you know, nothing explicitly hideous happens in it, but it, it does have this weird 
clammy, dreadful, and I mean that as a compliment, foreshadowing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and that's what people remember, because you've got to remember this film, there's no stars in it, is, are there? Can we just discuss it without spoilers? Can we agree to do that? Because I saw it, uh, I, <laughs> I was looking at it, and now I really want to see it. I'm going to watch it at the weekend. So I'm just, I would I'm never like, give away anything for I'm, a film. I'm, like, I'm getting creeping like horrors hearing Andrew getting closer and closer to giving away the plot. <laughs> I, I, love, I love the plot plot. Supposedly it's about women climbing up a rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's, 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 that, that's what it said on the posters, Marcus. Uh, it's like picnic and hanging rock. I really want to see Come it. Come and see the women climbing up a rock. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's important to remember, this is it, it's, it's incredibly important to the culture in Australia. So to, to see this, of all the Australian films that could be remade in some capacity, to see this one adapted into another format, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's pretty tricky territory because, we're in here. Because if they screw it up, the old country will be up in arms. Because They'll be up the, in arms. As you suggest, this is, this is quite the sacred cultural artefact for us. Um, just as a, a general thing, and I'll, I'll, I will put this to you, Sophia, first of all, are, are remakes ever a good idea? Are they necessary? If someone's got it right the first time, does it need to be done again? I think it depends. It's a case-on-case basis. Uh, I put particularly don't really like remakes, if I'm being honest. There are a few uh, exceptions uh, to that. Uh, But in general, I think if it's done right the first time, why touch it again? Ben, is there a case in this case for Picnic at Hanging Rock? Uh, For Picnic at Hanging Rock, yes, there could be. There could be because this is being remade as a television series. And it's important to remember that Generally speaking, uh, when a book is turned into a film, it can't capture absolutely everything because a film runs for maybe two hours max, generally speaking. A book, if you were to include every little uh, every little detail of that book, uh, that film could run for days, really. So presumably, if you're making a series, you're going to exploit some of the finer detail of that book. As the reviews and as the makers of this new Amazon series have said, it, it concentrates far more on the backstory stories of the character and some of the the strange little uh, niches to the relationships that that go on that are really only hinted at in the 1975 adaptation, including a same-sex relationship, which has uh, often been a a talking point for for many people who have uh, remarked on the film. Does does anyone have a particular favourite remake? Has anyone got a case for the remake? We've got about 15 seconds for you to make it. Augustine? Yeah, I really like the uh, remake of um, Infernal Affairs. Gets remade. It was remade into a. Uh, Scorsese did it. I've forgotten the name. I just. I just absolutely blanked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it made an impression clearly. There are I'm excited about remakes. Suspiria as well. I think Suspiria. Will Suspiria be is about to be remade. A couple of very well-known remakes: True Grit, The Birdcage, mm-hmm. Scarface, and of course House of Cards, the Netflix series. Mm. Oh, don't start me on that. God, that was boring. <laughs> uh, on that controversial note, the remake, that is, is is really shockingly dull, everybody. Seriously, I got four seasons into it and then just thought, what am I doing it's with my time? It's absolutely tremendous. It's um, tremendous. Everyone needs to know. Anyway, uh, until this episode is remade, that brings us to the end of today's show. My thanks to Sophia Ahmadi, Marcus Hippie, Augustin Machalari and Ben Ryland. Ben was the producer of today's show. The researchers were Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Tom Melville. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Marcus will be back in 30 minutes with today's edition of The Menu. I will be back in, what, three and a half hours with today's edition of The Monocle Daily. And Midori House is back on Monday. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.